Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This is our 224th episode, and it's more than a little unusual. In 1969, I was expelled from MIT, where I was at the time the president of the student body and an incredibly disruptive and disturbing deviant from accepted norms of campus behavior. Recently, a close friend sent me some campus articles from the Times, which caused me to remember something. For the yearbook, dated 1970, I was invited to write an article. Despite being banned from the campus, etc., I was quite present in people's short-term memories. Contemplating the invite, I decided to do a piece despite my distaste for MIT, which I typically referred to at the time as Dachau on the Charles, the river through Cambridge, which was next to MIT at one end, and next to Harvard, the finishing school for the masters of the universe, upwind a bit. So thinking about what to write, I asked, who reads these things? I remember, and I usually remember very little, that I thought no one does. So why not write my contribution to myself to remind myself sometime in the future when I might read it, what I and my environs were like way back when? A kind of time capsule communication. Well, lo and behold, spurred by the campus articles my friend sent me, after I remembered the above, I rooted around and found the yearbook. And a half century after the young me wrote the essay, the old me read it. And as intended, I was reminded. So here, without any editing to remove warts or to add substantial insights, is the voice of me, aged 22, blowing into the wind. Hopefully, I can read it aloud for you without too many emotional interruptions. And hopefully, it will convey something of those times, both virtues and problems, as a time capsule from my 1969. The article starts, Brothers and sisters, it is funny, I suppose, but true. When I look around my friend's rooms, okay, that's a lie, it was my room I was looking around, I see a story that is more real than any article I could hope to write for this book. It's a story that encompasses my years at MIT and may serve as good reading for aspiring criminals of the revolutionary variety. In any case, it's a story that I'm in the mood to tell, at least in part, and so let's set the scene. The room I'm now in has green walls, a white ceiling, and an overproductive radiator. It's hot as hell. To my left, I'm lying on the bed while writing, is an NLF flag and a large picture of Mick Jagger. To my right is a collection of expensive stereo components, a beautiful picture of Che, and a poem by Ho Chi Minh. The wheel of law turns without pause. After the rain, good weather. In the wink of an eye, the universe throws off its muddy clothes. For 2,000 miles, the landscape spreads out like a beautiful brocade. Light breezes, smiling flowers, high in the trees, amongst the sparkling leaves, all the men sing at once. Men and animals rise up, reborn. What could be more natural? After sorrow comes happiness. There is more, of course, many, many records. The only ones clearly visible from here are the band, Highway 61 Revisited, and a Doors album. 
There's a book about North Vietnam and a collection of Che's writings published by, surprisingly enough, MIT Press, are all prominent. On the opposite wall, pictures of Dylan, Lennon, Huey Newton, Mao, and Castro cutting cane are arranged in a triangular pattern. At the top is a black and white picture of immense crowds filling the roads, paths, and fields leading to Woodstock. Inside the triangle, there is another quotation from Ho. Quote, a revolution cannot be made by a single man. A large force is needed. The entire people must participate. That is why it is necessary to have cadre for propaganda, agitation, and education. They must be kind-hearted, open-minded, and sincere. They must help one another, work together with the masses without whom they could not succeed in anything. Each gesture, each attitude must conquer people's hearts. The revolution requires, in the first place, the participation of a politically conscious people. A man joins the revolution only when he understands that oppression is the cause of his sufferings. Therefore, we cannot lie to the people. If we did, the fear of reprisals could in difficult times lead to treason, which would be disastrous. Before the people, a revolutionary cadre has no right to assume a haughty and arrogant attitude, as if he were a feudal warlord. He must be modest. That's the end of the quote. At the head of the bed is a small bookcase, writings of Mao, Lenin, Marx, John Barth, and Kurt Vonnegut, Jr., two new left readers, Wilhelm Reich, books on the Chinese Cultural Revolution and the American Counterculture, and more albums, The Beatles, The Stones, Gimme Shelter. On the wall over my head, there is a large poster advertising Dylan's old movie, Don't Look Back. And next to it is a small picture of Captain America from Easy Rider looking back. If the tour seems boring, or worse, I'm certainly sorry. But just allow me a moment's more indulgence, please. The next and last room has a stove, refrigerator, table, couch made out of mattresses, a few chairs, and a bookshelf. Over the table there is a picture of John Brown and people dancing at Woodstock. And near the front door there's a large picture of Jim Morrison. Remember, we want the world, and we want it now. The bookshelf contains mostly radical stuff, some modern novels, and a few cinder blocks, except in one place, where a plank rests on a pile of books. Those books cannot be removed from the shelf to be read, since if they were, the whole thing would collapse. Dirac, Messiah, Feynman are the authors. I noticed this especially because I was once accustomed to their work, Physics is an art I once had the time and will to appreciate. Over the shelf, there is a loose collage of photos and posters, one against racism in South Africa and another against repression in Guatemala, a picture of Huey Newton and one of David Crosby with a guitar, Janis Joplin and also a Viet Cong woman in a, in a trench with a gun, there are pictures from Woodstock, crowds in mud, colors and frolicking, and finally there's a small picture of a gun, one of the Who, and another beautiful one of Eldridge Cleaver. There's something more a little off from the rest, a picture of Bobby Seale with a quotation, quote, to be revolutionary is to be an enemy of the state, to be arrested is to be a political prisoner. Dylan springs to mind, to live outside the law, you must be honest. 
One last wall and just three more posters to describe. A picture of Ho Chi Minh dancing some sort of jig with a Vietnamese woman is accompanied by a quotation from him. It is the same one that appears inside the triangle in the other room. A large picture of a woman's silhouette with a clenched fist and upraised head. Our history has been stolen from us. Our heroes died in childbirth from peritonitis. Of overwork, of oppression, of bottled up rage. Our geniuses were never taught to read or write. We must invent a past adequate to our ambitions. We must create a future adequate to our needs. Finally, then, there is a picture of Che with a cigar and a famous quotation from an essay he wrote titled Man and Socialism in Cuba. Quote, Let me say at the risk of seeming ridiculous that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. I almost forgot. There's also a tapped telephone, an inexpensive sheepskin rug, and an open window. The doctors and sociologists forever gleefully exclaim, they're all crazy, and he's no exception, even if he did go to MIT. The doctors are right, and I am crazy, for I cannot function within the social order that surrounds me. I have learned too much about my own real needs and those of my brothers and sisters here and in the third world. One man's insanity is another's great society, or so they say. But to my eyes, the suburban house is the real insane asylum. The ghetto, the city, and the third world are jails. The gatekeeper is the same for both institutions. Private property, profit, and centralized bureaucracy all have got to go. My whole existence is outside the law. Criminality is in my nature, and I know it. I intend to nurture it. Indeed, I cherish it, for in this society, the real criminals obey the laws. For a long time now, we've been shifting the load from one set of shoulders to another. At best, here, you carry it for a while, and I'll rest. Then I'll carry it, and you can rest. At worst, and a good deal more frequently... Who can I trick so I can unload this burden at their expense? The weight isn't existential. It is part of a system that we can and must replace. Let me clarify one thing about insane asylums and jails. We all, every one of us in this country, live in locked containers. If you don't see the lock, your container is an asylum. Your life is alienated and your fulfillment impossible, whether you're rich or poor. More even, you are always alone. If you see the lock, everything changes. The asylum becomes a prison, and the enemy becomes a visible and tangible entity. Your allies are everywhere, and loneliness has no real meaning. Your struggle is for freedom, and it is unalienated and real. Even in bondage, you can begin to taste real freedom, love, and joy. There is, of course, a price. Your tensions and frustrations all surface. Further, your enemy is not always passive. The first step, then, is to see the lock. The next, however hard, is to smash it. This task means overcoming desires and attitudes that have virtually become a part of our very makeup. I began the fight, at least consciously, here at MIT, and I've learned something about it, some of which I can share here with you. I joined a fraternity during rush week, but I had really been in one ever since ninth grade. At that time, I was elected to a school office and joined into the special group that every suburban high school has, the wealthy, honor student, extremely social, big men on campus group. 
thus the snobs. Like any other fraternal order, that one, even though informal, rested on competition and a highly overdeveloped conception of its own value and importance. We became ingrown, and the members of our group got close to one another and far from everything real. It seemed that before you could love a person, you had to love people, but that kind of thinking, however right, had too many costs attached to be very profitable. There were rewards, of course, friends, status, privilege, and a certain strange kind of security. There wasn't much fulfillment, but no one left the group. We all had convinced ourselves that we had the best of many positive raw deals. I left AEPI at the very beginning of my sophomore year, and in many ways it was my first really political act. They said, quote, stay and work on its faults from inside. Quote, it's bad, but all the alternatives are worse. Quote, if you stay, you can be in all kinds of activities and even student government. If you stay, you'll be a success. My parents and friends, almost everyone, told me that I was throwing away all the things I had worked so hard to get. I wasn't, but I soon would. At the time, I didn't really understand completely, but now I have a name for the things I started to throw away. I call them false privileges, and they are the first layer on the lock that closes us all in. In the fraternity, I learned a lot about how people, good people, can become estranged from their own needs and values by the social pressures that arise in groups. I began to understand the ways in which attachments to ways of thinking and acting that seemed productive could really be self-defeating, and also how it was that they could arise even against the natural inclinations of the people involved. Little things like the ways people related and didn't relate to studies and work, and more important things like the way people competed and the way men treated women all seemed to reflect something about society rather than just the immediate people involved. At the same time, I began to understand something about the way that the whole country relates internationally. A million words read, coups here, wars there, always our corporations, always our financial interests at stake. So I began to understand that something about our economy necessitated the depravity that we committed in the name of democracy. Again, it seemed clear that the, quote, evil men involved were totally estranged from the reality of their acts. They were oblivious, for example, to the millions of deaths caused by their plunder. At the same time, they had become Dylan's Mr. Jones. The process they called capital accumulation and the free, uninhibited pursuit of profit I began to call imperialism. Imperialism, the highest stage of injustice, assumed for me the character of an all-pervasive reality. Here's a quote. I take Allen Ginsberg to meet fantastic, great, beautiful artists, and no trespassing boards block up all there is to see. Eviction, infection, gangrene, as atom bombs, both ends exist only because there is someone who wants profit. That's Bob Dylan. I became committed to destroying imperialism and profit no matter what the cost, and at the same time, I developed a more intense relation with the people of Vietnam and Cuba, despite never having met them, than I had ever had with Americans. I somehow knew that my life and theirs were entwined. I knew that death in Vietnam was death, and just as bad as death in my own home. More even, I began to suspect that it was worse. 
for the Vietnamese seemed somehow more important, as they were striking blows at every lock in the world. Finally, and again at the same time, I became aware of the problems of racism. Most importantly, I came to see what it meant for me to be forced into relating unequally with others and how that affected everything about my being. I began to understand the struggle of blacks at two levels. First, it became clear that their struggle was totally just in terms of their own needs and desires. And secondly, it became clear that their struggle for self-determination was crucial to my freedom. Perhaps most importantly for my political development, I saw again that white racism was, a f was far more than an economic phenomenon. Its maintenance was crucial to the same system that bred imperialism. By the time I had mastered a lot of the relevant rhetoric, imperialism, capitalism, monopoly, state, ruling class, etc., etc., and was a full-time radical, the next step almost broke me. It's hard to describe as it's the transition from knowing something to capital K, capital S, knowing something. The words and ideas all become a part of our being. Every act is related to every other. A rent strike, a car passing a hitchhiker, robbery, a nasty salesman, planes over Vietnam, college mixers, maids in suburbia, Coca-Cola in Bolivia, cosmetics, crowded streets, advertising, authority, alienation from school or work, casual conversation, and on and on. It seems so pat, but it's so real. All the bad things that we try to make believe aren't there become related to one another, and they all rest on a mutable set of relations and institutions. And so I read Marx and Che and became, at least in the mirror, an American revolutionary. The things really most worth relating can't be covered here and now. What one learns in practice at the sanctuaries, various campaigns and meetings, the Harvard strike, the election, the November Action Coalition, the sit-ins, and Northeastern is almost impossible to relate in person, let alone in an article like this one. The struggle to confront society for the first time is, for most of us, the first real revolutionary step. Hang-ups about private property and any sort of violence or even militants are part of our training and overcoming them is a difficult and risky task. It can be an exceptionally human or somewhat barbaric process. Understanding and renouncing in practice certain privileges, most especially, for me, those that relate to the accumulation of power and those that arise through man's domination over women, is central to the transition of a person from radical to revolutionary. The discovery of man's own inhumanity and the struggle to conquer rather than ignore it is perhaps the hardest of all. The wonders of collective action and participation and the things we learn about our past identities are frightening until we realize deep inside that our alternative visions are real and attainable. There is one critical lesson I've learned about the revolutionary transition from capitalism to socialism that I might be able to relate effectively here. The movement for achieving socialism is itself the embryo of the new society. Any defects that it might have will appear in full-grown horror in the world we are to build. Revolutionary violence must be self-conscious and seek its own dissolution. Revolutionary leadership must be anti-authoritarian. It must come from the initiative of the people. Revolutionary discipline must be offered and not demanded. 
Revolutionaries must always struggle against their own tendencies toward racism, chauvinism, and the accumulation of the power of privilege. Intolerance is no virtue. Within the constraints of revolutionary opposition, our movement must be as humane as the society we seek to create. There is one other poster in my friend's room, actually my room. It's purple and has a picture of a barbed wire fence. There is a quotation from Thoreau. All men recognize the right of revolution, that is, the right to refuse allegiance to and to resist the government when its tyranny and its inefficiency are great and unendurable. All machines have their friction, but when the friction comes to have its machine and oppression and robbery are organized, I say let us not have such a machine any longer. It is graduation time, 1970. We are confronted by a time-honored decision as we face the society that stretches beyond the ivy walls. It is a society characterized by fear, hatred, and greed. Every activity is marked by competition, and the national character is molded around the influence of racism and male supremacy. When we look beyond our national boundaries or into the ghettos of our own cities, we see the other side of capitalist prosperity. For a few to be prosperous and powerful, our present system demands that the many submit to human degradation, misery, and even death. We are a people seemingly caught up in the inevitability of historical destruction. We have forgotten or perhaps never really been able to learn how to deal with our own needs and the needs of our brothers and sisters. The reactionaries suggest a return to yesterday, and the liberals, perched behind their blinders and their power, proclaim the beauty and promise of the present. We have finally begun to see the truth. The way out lies in the future. It's graduation time, and our choice is just not that complicated. We can admit that our lives are a mass of contradictions. We can admit that the bourgeois existence is the existence of the living dead. We can confront our societally imposed inhibitions about using force and confronting authority, and we can recognize our responsibility to humankind. Indeed, we can join the struggle, or we can cast our lot with the other side. We can run with the movement or against it. We can try to destroy imperialism, or we can implicitly work toward destroying the revolution. But the middle ground never was and never will be habitable. Vietnamese are dying. Latin Americans are dying. Africans are dying. Black Americans are dying. Revolutionaries throughout the world are struggling against imperialism, colonialism, capitalism, and the totalitarian bureaucracy that goes under the name of socialism in Russia. Revolutionaries are dying, and we are still scabbing. At every stage of our development, they will attempt to hand us the maudlin gray gowns of the aggressor. We must be strong and direct. We must choose the black and red of revolution. Power to the people, and it's signed Mike Albert. The thing is, not so much the essay as to contemplate that the person who wrote that had been elected the president of the entire student body, and that that was, if anything, maybe a little tame compared to speeches that I gave in dorms and uh, in, in fraternities and so on running for office. Those were those times, not quite the same as these times, but the message, I think, still applies. At any rate, that's the time capsule 
from the late 1960s and 1970. And this is Mike Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.